This morning we're going to talk about a subject. Um, it's a strange title, What is Real? You'd think that's manifestly obvious, but let me help you understand where we're going. On December 12th, Sam Brinkman Freed was arrested. He was arrested in the Bahamas. Uh, as it turns out, if you know the story, this is a young man, 30 years old, and apparently he had stolen at least $8 billion. People's retirements gone, life savings gone, investments gone, uh, rippling through the economy. Uh, people wondered, people talked about how could it happen? How could this possibly occur with all the, the structures we have within finance? And, and how could somebody be that diabolical, 30 years of age, just wiping away people's savings? I found very interesting is that... Um, Maybe you might think it's his parents. Maybe they were absent, maybe broken home. Do you know, actually, his parents are professors of law at Stanford, both of them. And then you start wondering about what other things might have occurred to that. Maybe there's some trauma. When you look, there's nothing. Then you look for his apology letter and say, maybe in there he throws himself under the bus and owns all of his issues. Not really. Said, I'm sorry. People he employed. We were like family. Sorry I broke that up. Then he started talking about what he had done differently. If I've done this, we'd be all right. Maybe we could still make it back. And you read the letter and you're just scratching your head. Is this guy living on the same planet as I am? I'd like to propose to you this morning, I think that Sam's issue is he didn't understand what's real. He didn't get it. Now, you might say, well, what do you mean, Dan? When I say what is real, I would like to, for you to consider what is truth or what reality is. Matter of fact, I, I don't think that if you look around, uh, you might put your finger on all sorts of cultural issues that are happening today and say, oh, that's the issue. If we just fix this thing, if people would just look at things this way. Can I propose to you the stuff that you're dealing with today, the things that we're seeing in culture, the spike of violence, the, the destruction of the family, the, the racial strife that is going on, the, the juggling and battling for the Supreme Court. Can I tell you all of that? Convinced. It's people who don't know what real is. This morning I'm going to try to prove that to you. Now you might say, well, 30-year-old Sam Bankman uh, if he'd just been a Christian, if he'd just been a Christian, he, he would never do this type of stuff. You know, there's a survey done the year Sam was born in 1993. The survey is pretty profound. Matter of fact, it was the largest survey ever done of evangelical teenagers at the time. 3,795 teenagers in youth groups, kind of like ours. And they came back with some startling discoveries. Now remember, this is in 1993. This is the year that Sam was born. 66% of those teenagers in the last three months prior to the survey had lied to their parents. 36 had cheated on an exam. 23 had tried to intentionally hurt somebody. And 55% of Christian teens engaged in sexual activity by the time that they were 18. How could that be? I propose to you that uh, we're not handing off what, what is real. 
Matter of fact, 15% of the church kids disagreed with the following statement. In other words, 85% agreed with it. What is right for one person in a given situation might not be the right for another person who encounters the same situation. 85% goes on. They agree that just because it's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for me. In other words, right and wrong was fluid. That idea of what is right is subject to change. If I find myself in a situation in which I'm presented with evidence or have overwhelmed with my feelings that it is right. Matter of fact, if you want to look at this a little bit more, this data from this, we're not going to go into it much more, but there's a very helpful book by Josh McDowell called Right from Wrong. If you're interested in exploring this a little bit more, we're going to go in a little deeper direction when it comes to scripturally. It's a great book. I don't think it's published, but you can still get copies of it. It's a fantastic and helpful book to understand this idea of absolutes and where they come from. But more on this. If you live in a world today, our day, not 30 years ago in 1993, but we're seeing the evidence of it today, what would Jesus say if he showed up on the scene and when it looks around and he sees that people think their gender is changeable or their pronouns are optional or if right from wrong depends on the situation you're in? What would Jesus say? I propose to you, Jesus walked into a room a little over 2,000 years ago and that was the precise issue. And he met a man who disagreed with him. The conversation was short because Jesus only had hours before he went to the cross. But you'll find the conversation in John 18. And if you'll turn there, we're going to consider that as a launch point. And this morning, I'd like to tell you what I'm going to try to do. What I'm going to try to do is walk through four questions. Four specific questions to make the case for what is real. We're going to ask, the first question will be, what is truth? The second question will be, how do we know truth? The third will be, why does truth exist? And the fourth question will be, what was the basis of truth before the fall? And what is, what is it now? As I said, Jesus walked into a room. You're about to read what happened in that room. In John chapter 18, verse 33, this is the start of it. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have de delivered you over to me. What have you done? Now notice in this passage, we'll keep reading it, but notice in the passage that what's going on here. Pilate is focused on the here and now what be considered real according to his senses. Jesus is replying and giving him a picture of ultimate reality. That's been the, really the life of Christ has been ultimate reality. In other words, the things that he has taught, the things that he has done. Picture the way God the Father created the world to be. More about that on a moment. Verse 36, notice the struggle continues. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. 
Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I've come into the world. To bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? I think the same issue of reality, what is true, was happening back here. I think it has been happening ever since the fall. Pilate could only see in front of him. His truth was all about power, manipulation, getting one hand over somebody else. Jesus is talking about a truth that encapsulates ultimate reality. Matter of fact, the word there when he says to bear witness to the truth, aletheia is the word in the original Greek. And it actually has the idea of what conforms to reality. Or in other words, you could say, the way things are. Jesus says, if you listen to the way things are, they truly are. Not you, Pilate, that you think you've got me here and I'm under the thumb of the Jewish people and my life is on the ropes. No, no, no. If you really on the side of truth, the way things are, this is the way it has to be because I'm going to the cross. If you get that, if you understand, if you buy into that, you'll follow me because you've tapped into what truth is, what reality is. That brings us to our first point. I'd like you to consider. What is truth? What is truth? So I said, truth is reality. Maybe you remember the movie The Matrix. The Matrix is where all these people were caught in the Matrix and they didn't understand what truth is until this small group of people took a pill. I don't know if it was the red pill or the blue pill. I keep messing that up. But they were then able to see reality as it truly is. That's the word aletheia. And what is truth is, is that you see things as they truly are. Not just what you see with your eyes. Not just the violence in the streets or the pronouns changing. But you see underneath the events that you see why those things are happening. And you frame it through the lens of who God is. More on that in a moment. But let me show you how Jesus has this as a theme of his life. It starts off in John 1.14. It says this, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. That word truth there is aletheia. The word grace there is charis. It has the idea of grace and truth. He can't get any more gracious. means it'll meet you where you're at. He's kind. He is enabling. He's empowering. He's full of that. He's everything we need as humans. And he's full of truth. What he teaches is reality. And you either flow with it or you'll get run over by it. That's the idea. Goes on. John 8, 31 through 36. There have been many Jewish people who believed in Christ. And he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You'll know the aletheia, the truth. You'll know reality. And the truth will do what to you? Set you free. In other words, you'll see through events to recognize what the real issue is. And in your own life, you'll recognize how when you set your life on God, you put your hope in Christ, 
while the world seems to be out of control, you'll know who's in control. More than that, if you look at John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the, that's kind of weak over here, uh, I, the way, the truth, and the life. I finished the truth there for you. No one comes to the Father except through me. That word truth there, aletheia, again, the way things are meant to be. So when it comes to this idea here, we're asking a question, what is truth? Jesus is truth. What Jesus teaches is true. So when we look at the Bible, the Bible isn't just an instruction book to have a great life now. You know, Christianity makes you better at life and your life better and all that other stuff. But the Bible actually gives us God's thoughts on things like temptation and how to love people and how to value people. And it gives us insight on how to treat one another and how to honor parents and how to submit to authority. In other words, when we read the Bible, it actually gives us the way things are meant to be. And if we disregard that, and we don't as a church, but our society as a whole has, what happens is you start going against the God who's created everything and the way he's wired everything, and guess what? You have things break down. You have things not work. It's like having an electrician come over to your house who doesn't really know how to do electrical. And you flip this switch on, nothing happens. Flip this switch on and a light goes on in your kitchen. And you go, this is messed up. This shouldn't work like that. It's because the person who wired it doesn't know what he's doing. And when we look at the Bible, God's wired the world. And the world for a long time has stood in the shadow of God's kindness in seeing his standard through Judeo-Christian ethic. We saw that in the courts. We saw that when you lie, you're held accountable. When you steal, you're held accountable. When you take someone's life, you're held accountable. But the more God is eclipsed and drifts out of our society, the less possibility it is that people see life for what it is, what real life is and how things work. You're living, I'm living, we're swimming in a culture that is embracing relativity. And there's only two ways that you deal with relativity. Since God has drifted out and you don't know, people don't know right from wrong and they just do whatever feels good. Either you make God into your image, which makes things worse, or force. That's the only thing. Because in order to have a society to function, you've got to have an ethic. And if people don't buy into who God is, somebody will come in and force you to do something. That's another series that we'll look at. But the question you might be asking, what is truth? Great. But how do we know truth? It's one thing to say Jesus Christ is ultimate truth and his word is truth. But how does that actually work? That's where I find a lot of people lose this in the corner of life. And there can't be any greater representation of who God is and what his word is than in the the law given to Moses in Exodus. If you turn over to Exodus chapter 20, what I'd like to do this morning is to give you a simple formula that you can tell what truth is, absolute truth, not relative truth, absolute truth. Anything that is absolutely true can always go back and will always go back to the very person of God. In other words, if somebody says, this is true, and you can't trace it back to the person of God, know that it's not true. 
Let me say that again. If somebody says this is true and they can't trace it back to the person of God, it's not true. And let me gently say this. It doesn't matter how they feel. It simply doesn't. Because God is the maker of reality. And he says what's true. And for mortals to come along and say, no, 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 I feel like this is true. Or I'd want this to be true. I've experienced this to be true. You're wrong. Let's find out how we figure that out. Uh, in, as you're in John, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, uh, I want to read one more scripture verse. Jesus is praying in John 17. And he says this, sanctify them in the truth. He's praying for you. If you're a follower of Christ, he's praying for you. Isn't that amazing? It's just like our, our Savior to do that. Sanctify them or make them holy, is that word sanctified, in truth. Your word is truth. So sanctify them in the truth. Aletheia, your word is truth. And the greatest expression of God's declared word is in the law given to Moses on Sinai. So if you'll notice in verse 13, there's a precept we're going to call that. And how do we know truth? You shall not murder. Now why is that true? On the screen, we're going to put a graphic up for you to see this and how we know truth. God is the creator and sustainer of life. And so that is the overwhelming person of God. That's the standard because that's who God is. He creates life and he sustains life. So what you just read in verse 13 is part of something that comes from him. He says, you shall not murder. The second step. You shall not murder. Why? Not because God just wants us to get along. Because you don't murder. Because it's not your place to murder. And as we work this out, why do we have things like uh, the death penalties? Because God has gave that over after Noah, after the flood. Because evil came into the world through murder, God enacted. Because he's the author and creator and sustainer of life a law that said you shall not murder to keep evil back. And God can do that, and he gives it to a plurality of people, not an individual, a plurality of people because it helps restrain evil. So the person of God is reflected in his precept. In that precept, we divine principles. If you walk this thing down, there's a principle that human life has inherent value. So notice this, as we operate in this world today, we believe that human life has inherent value. And we know that because we see the precept of God, you shall not murder. And why? Because that reflects the person of God. So when you engage with people on issues such as abortion, it's not about what they think or what you think. It's about who God is. Then it's about what you think. You see the difference? And you see somebody who believes that abortion is okay because the woman has the ability to do whatever her body or whatever she wants. No, she doesn't. There is a God. And a God says, this is my precept. And then because there's a principle in human life as inherent value. If you violate my standard, that principle, you violate my precept, you're against me as a person. My character. 
You see, this is a big deal. And we know this is true because of who God is, not because of who Republicans are, not because of what we'd like to impose on people or control people. It's not about that. It's about all absolutes. What's true for all people, all places, all times flows from the person of God. And that principle means that you should treat people with respect and kindness. This also goes to police brutality, by the way. People have inherent value. This principle scatters out anytime someone demeans somebody else. It's wrong because he has a precept that's expressed in the most extreme terms because God in his person. So you see this almost like a funnel moving out. This is why racism is wrong. Because everybody has inherent value. And so when we think of this idea of God and who he is in his person, then the precept, then we're able to apply that. But just don't focus on the precept without the principle and how it is applied in all of our different situations. And it always flows back to the person of God. And this means for a Christian, if there comes a point in which you're sitting across the table from somebody who's considering having an abortion, the most loving thing you can do is plead with them to not. Because they will be sinning against the God who created life. So that's how it works in that. Let's go to the next verse, verse 14. Let's think about this. And there's a principle there, very clearly, when it says in that passage, the idea, you shall not commit adultery. Now, you should not commit adultery. Well, why is that? Because the first principle of who God is in his person, that God is love. So therefore, as God is love, and now this is, this is the trick here. When we get the idea of love, we've got probably hundreds of definitions of love in here, some very sentimental and some not so sentimental. I would define love as doing what is in somebody else's best interest. Now, but you notice that in our culture, we have not defined it that way. Matter of fact, let me read you some lyrics and this might somewhat date me, but it's absolutely going to date some of you. There was a song in 1977. Ah, 1977. Steelers were working on another fantastic year. Oh, we don't want to get into that. 46 years ago, Debbie Boone. You're there. The wavy hair. Welcome back. Um, the song was You Light Up My Life. Oh, oh, no dancing, please. These are the lyrics. Listen to this. So many nights I'd sit by my window waiting for someone to sing me a song. So many, I know, I feel the same way. So many, <laughs> so many dreams I keep deep inside, alone in the dark, but now you've come along because you light up my life. You give me hope to carry on. You light up my days and fill my nights with song. Fantastic. Just sappy, drippy. Here's the toxin. It can't be wrong when it feels so right. There you go. 1977. Debbie Boone. You missed reality. It can be wrong. It is wrong when it feels so right. And the problem is, is we define love wrong. 
And people have been swimming in those waters. You listen to something. You know this when you're a teenager. You're listening to songs. And all of a sudden love and you start thinking this. And People have twisted and contorted the concept of love. Well, we look at love for who God is. God does what is right. He does what's in your best interest. And so what that means is that precept in that verse 14. It's the idea you shall not commit adultery. You should not do that. Because who I am in love, I'll do what's in your best interest. And what is in your best interest, the other person in the relationship, is not to have an affair. It's not to fool around. But the people who say, but I really feel attracted and I don't feel attracted to them. I feel like it's okay. I think that God would love me. God wants the best for me. You've made your own God up. You've created God that will let you do whatever you want. And you know when you do that, guess what you have? You're God. You have idolatry. Now from that, the person of God is love. We see the precept you should not commit adultery, which leads us to a principle. The principle is this. As I've mentioned, fooling around is wrong. More than that, an intimate relationship outside of marriage is wrong. Watching intimacy, pornography, is wrong. Not because I want to be a killjoy. Not because I want to take away from your life. I want you to live life. God has hardwired us in this way. And when we deviate from this, you might say, oh, I don't commit adultery. Well, Jesus changed that up a bit. If you look at a woman with lust in your heart, and he's not saying this because I want to hold you back. He says, I want you to live free. I want you to live free. And the reason why it's wrong, the reason why this principle exists is because there's a precept. And the precept behind it stands a God who is love, a God who wants your best. Do you see how this works? When you want to know what is real, true for all people, all places, or times, you can always trace it back to the person of God. If you can't trace it back to the person of God, it mostly given in a precept in the Bible, then it's wrong. And the people that want to impose on you and impose on me Ways to live that ref don't reflect that, you need to disagree with. You need to stand opposed. And know this, when you do that, you're loving people. You're giving them what's in their best interest. Let's look at another example when it comes to that. Is the idea of the person of God. God is just and he's a provider. Look at verse 15. You shall not steal. Behind that precept of verse 15, you shall not steal, is the person of God that he is a provider and he is just, meaning that he will deal with injustice. And so therefore you should not steal. Don't take from somebody else what is there. And really this is a, a form of trying to be God-like again. Every one of these, by the way, is a, is a trying to be like God when we violate these. Because we're rejecting God and we say we have a better way. So we're effectively saying street level view. We're God. We're calling the shots. You and I can't create. We can't create. God can create, but we can't. The best we can do is steal. If we go outside of earning something, the best we can do is take from somebody else. It's that quest to be again God-like. So stealing is wrong. Not just because. There's a situation in which you took from somebody else and that's all it is. It's, it's wrong because God is just 
And he's a provider. If you need something, look to God. Don't look to somebody else to take what they have. That's why it's sinful. Because you're going around. You could be looking to God to provide your needs and works hard or look to family to help you out. But when you take from somebody else, you sin against God, you sin against them. Remember the story when Nathan showed up in front of David and he had the affair? What did David say appropriately? I've sinned against God first. He reckoned, he saw reality as it really was. The issue was how he saw God, not just how he related to people. He saw it clearly. So the principle that stands behind this idea in verse 15 is that property of others is to be respected. Property of others is to be respected. Why is rioting and looting bad? And you as a Christian might say, well, it it's causes a lot of economic damage. True. Because people should respect police. True. There's a lot of different things you can't say, but this is the fundamental issue. The reason why it's wrong is because God is just and he is a provider. God will deal with justice through the means he's appropriated, not people running around burning stuff down, and he's a provider. You don't take from somebody else what God has provided for them. It's an offense. You shall not steal. You shall not damage. You shall not incur harm on somebody else's property. Property is something that people own. When people infringe on that, it's a twisting and a warping of who God is. So we respect that from other people. It reveals the quality and character of God in this. And the laws gives us things to set us free, not to limit us. It shows us who God is, who we are, and we come up wanting, that's when we need a savior. So, third question. So that's how we know what truth is, how we determine it. It always relates back to the person of God. Third question, why does truth exist? God's truth exists for provision and protection. Those two things, this is really, really important because we are intrinsically self-oriented. And the law was given as a provision on how you can know who God is. It's a provision. It provides for you the avenue to identify right from wrong his character. And it also protects you. The law of God protects you from making decisions that will harm you and harm others. Those are the two things in which the law functions as. So to disregard those things, you lose the ability to know who God is and you lose the ability to be protected and to function as a society. And exactly that is what we're seeing today. We're seeing it over the centuries, this twisting and this turning. I've seen pastors even say things like the parts of the Bible don't apply to us today, particularly the Old Testament. You probably know I'm talking about. And the reason why that's wrong is for everything I just told you. When you take the foundations away, all you're left is with sand. How do you counsel people? How do you know that God is the creator if Genesis isn't true? How do you know all sorts of stuff? How do you know God keeps his covenantal word if you don't know the Old Testament, if it's not true? And this is the wild thing. We've got people who are supposed to be on your side saying those things. It's a dangerous world. We, the leaders at Grace Fellowship, we love you too much to let you think that that's appropriate or that's okay. 
We love you too much to let you think that we can just slice and dice parts of Scripture. We love you too much to let you get away with things. That's why we do church discipline. And we don't do church discipline because we get our kicks. We do church discipline because there is a God, and he has given us his word, and there are principles that relate to that. And we want you to be free. And that's why we do that. Because Jesus Christ and his word is real. You can know truth. And that truth, if you flow with it, can lead you to freedom. If you flow against it, it will run you over. So why does that truth exist? It's for provision and for protection. And the Bible helps us to look at the word and we can find out what truth is and then we go out into the world. Versus a cultural truth looks at what the opportunities are that I can take advantage of and what I would like to do regardless of it, who it might damage or who it might hurt. It's all about what I feel to be true. Why is it that somebody can say that if they're a guy, they can be a girl? Because they feel that is true. They go out thinking that, believing that, wanting that, and they wreck themselves. They twist their minds, and society twists their minds. And the reality is, is you don't know this already, and I'm sure you do, a guy can never be a girl. It doesn't matter what I think. It matters the fact that we have a God who makes people. He's the creator. And if he created you that way, that's the way you're created. And the better thing is, let's talk about why you're feeling that. Let me introduce you to Christ in whatever stress you're having that Jesus Christ promises if you trust in him, he'll move through your life. He'll take your sin and he'll move you through and help you reform your reality, not based on how you feel, but on who he is. And at the end of the day, that's the answer we need. But that's why people are, this gender stuff and the pronoun stuff is happening specifically. They want to realign the way they think based on how they feel. But there is something such as objective truth, and it's reflected in God's word. So that's why truth exists, to lead us back to God, to have us cry out and say, this is not the way we're created. As C.S. Lewis said, pain is God's megaphone to a morally deaf world. You know that to be true. And as followers of Jesus Christ, you stand close enough to somebody when they're going through stuff and go, you know, I'd love to talk to you about Christ. As you see people running in a hundred different directions in society trying to figure things out, you can stand up and say, this is right, this is wrong. Based on the person of God, the precepts he's given, this is the principle that I live by. I'd love to tell you about Christ. I don't stand above you, I stand beside you. And I'd love to introduce you to who he is. Because he is truth. He is real. Fourth question, which we're bringing this thing. What is the basis of truth before the fall, and what is it now? When Adam and Eve walked with God, in the, with God in the garden, they were able to relate to God. They saw reality. They saw what truth was in their relationship with God. They saw clearly when they fell, they were darkened in their understanding. And now we live by faith. We can't get away from it, but we have evidence for our faith. We believe in a God who exists. We believe in a Christ who has died on the cross, and that's reflected in his word. So today we live by faith that God is doing something. He's giving us ample evidence in his word. That's how we live today. And if you struggle with trusting Christ, 
you need to know him better, as we said several weeks ago. The reason why you don't trust somebody is that you either know them or you don't know them. You know they're not trustworthy because you've seen them violate your trust, or for many of us, so you just don't know Christ good enough. And when you come to know him better, your trust grows, your faith grows. The reason why we struggle with those principles is because we don't trust like we should. And that's why we come together during these times so that as you hear me talking about this, and you go, yeah, inherent value everybody has. Why? Because God says don't murder. And that's who God is. So, okay, I believe that to be true. I'm with other people who believe that to be true. I'm going to go out and tell my neighbors. I'm going to represent this in society. I believe this to be true. And as people push back on you, you come back to church, and we encourage you again through this through our core tracks and learning different things. And again, your faith grows, so you're able to go back out and represent the truth and then come back. Why is it that we're supposed to meet weekly? Because God set it up that way. And when churches take off and they go, wow, we're just not going to meet on Christmas or we're not going to meet for six months. Hold on a second. I understand with COVID, there's a sense of which you want to figure out your footing and care for your people well. But there has to come a point that you go, we meet because God told us to meet, not because we feel like it. You see how that's in influenced and worked in our church. It's really important, and I encourage you to pray for our leaders. We're, we want to do this well. We want to love you well, and we love you well when we encourage you and it feels good, and also when we rebuke you and it feels difficult. But we want to go after what's real. And the basis for what is real is faith today and what he's given us. And Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find us, find it. When you know truth, it sets you free. And this world is incredibly confusing. It's incredibly tough. And as the band is coming forward, uh, as we're getting ready to, to sing, uh, it's encouraging and needful for you to remember that as part of this fellowship, as part of this you need the people around you. You need other people to help you understand what is true. And if you have a situation in which you go, well, I get that, the person of God, the precept, the principle, uh, but how does it look in this situation? How does it look in this situation? You've got gold sitting around you. You've got people that you can engage with in conversations. Ask them about your life. But as long as we're talking about the scores from the day before and you're not building those relationships and making time for core, you're not going to have those relationships. It's like a fire. If you want to build a fire, you can never build a fire with one log. It doesn't work unless you use an accelerant, and I've used them all. But back to the original story. You multiple sticks of wood. And what happens is one piece of wood keeps the other going, and the other piece keeps the other going. That's really like church as we come together. So take advantages of the relationships around you. Take advantages of the people who walked in your shoes if you walk in a particular industry. Because you want to know what truth is. Because on the other side of truth is freedom. That is reality when we fall after Jesus Christ. And it's tough out there. So would you pray with me that God gives us insight into the truth that we've considered this morning. Lord, we're grateful for your kindness. We're grateful for the way that you are faithful to us. And you've been faithful, incredibly faithful in giving us your word. So we can know your thoughts. We can know how you treat people. We can know 
how you relate. And we can know that Jesus Christ, you came and died on the cross and you rose from the grave so that you took our wrath on yourself. You were treated as if you were a sinner so that we can be treated as if we're righteous because we are in you and we trust you. And for those in this room that have never experienced that, I pray that you would give them restlessness until they rest in you. And for those others who've trusted in you, thank you for this truth. Thank you for freedom. You love for us to live. Help us to resist the impulse of the world. Help us to turn off the things that are degrading our understanding of you. Because we often think things are valuable that they're not. We think things that are good that are not. Rescue from that, us from that. Help us to see what is truly real. Help us to see through your eyes. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.